So we've been working through this framework series, and uh, quite frankly, this isn't the easiest series. You know, it's, it's built on kind of abstract truths. It's built on this idea that we need to kind of hone down what the Bible says and what the scriptures say about things in our lives and how we're, going to, we're supposed to look at them, how we're supposed to view our lives from the vantage point of God's word. And so when we have this kind of framework up here to symbolize that, now this past week, it, I don't know, Matt's gone now, but I don't know how many times this has gone up and gone down. And the last time it started to break. And I thought, oh no, this series almost needs to end, you know? I mean, we, we have a couple cracks in the armor. This is actually foam. I don't know how many two or three two or three-year-olds have run into the side of this and had the whole thing, you know, I've come in here and it's been shaking. But the framework of God isn't like that, right? The framework for what God offers us is rock solid. It's steel. It's not foam. It's not just something Maddie creates with a saw and some paint. It's something deeply within our lives that gives us the possibility that what we've understood as reality is not everything there is, that there is more and that there is a plan, that there is a guidance, that there is leadership for our lives. This morning we're discussing and we're walking through God's design for intimacy. God's design for intimacy. If you don't shift in your chair on that topic, I don't know what will make you shift in your chair, okay? So I have to warn you at the outset, this is a PG-13 sermon, okay? It's not R-rated. It's certainly not X-rated, but it's not G. And if you're uncomfortable with that, well, then hang on to your seat. Um, And if you have a child that you think might not want to hear these things, that might be okay. You might want to take them someplace else, and that'll be fine with me as well. I won't be offended. But God's design for intimacy means that we're going to discuss sexuality this morning. Sexuality in church, okay? This isn't Friday night, it's not Saturday, it's not Tuesday, it's Sunday. And so we're going to walk into this looking for God's plan for, among other things, sexuality. Now, to begin this, I want you to close your eyes. And I'm not going to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm not asking you to raise your hands or any of that. I just want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to describe a place, and I want you to allow your imagination to transport you there, okay? It's late March or early April, and you're on the Gulf Coast of Florida. Okay, you're on the Gulf Coast of Florida. It's that season in Florida's climate when the days are hot, but the evenings still get relatively cool. And so you're sitting in the heat all day, and you're having a great time. It's a fun experience. You're with people that you enjoy being with, but you're working at this fun, and the energy has drained out of your life, and you have worked hard at having a good day, and you've come to the end of that day, and you're in your condominium where you're staying. It's the fourth floor, and that condo looks out over the Gulf Coast. The only thing in between you and the water is a, is a strip of beach, some sand. And you're sitting there in a deck chair, and you can hear the gulls, and they're crying. You can hear them. You hear kids still playing as the sun is starting to go down and you hear parents calling for their kids to go in for the night. You smell the salt in the air and you can kind of experience that. And you're sitting there with your iced tea and you're watching as the sun, which has been moving all the way from east to west, is now creeping down to the horizon and it is about to touch the very end of the earth as far as as you can see it. And you're sitting there in this restful moment, and it's a moment when you reflect, this has been a good day. In fact, it's been a good week, it's been a good month, it's been a good life. And you're sitting in your deck chair, and you're in relative seclusion. You're by yourself. You're alone. Except there's a deck chair next to you. And you have the choice among six billion people on this planet to choose who you would like to be there in this moment of your life. Don't tell me, don't say it out loud. Just imagine, what is the face that comes to your mind? Who would you like there 
sipping iced tea at the end of a great day on vacation, having expended all sorts of energy, but now walking into a moment of rest and reflecting and communicating and talking and sharing about your life. Who would you choose to be there? My guess is that it's somebody who you've had a relationship with for some time. It's possibly somebody who you've had a close connection with, somebody you've walked through life with, maybe it's even decades. Or maybe it's someone you've lost. Maybe you're here this morning and this moment of an imaginative kind of transportation reminds you of somebody who you wish were there. You can open your eyes now. And you can imagine that there is this person that you have lost. They may have passed away or walked out of your life or whatever it might be. And you look back and you wish they could be there. Or maybe you're one of those people who hasn't found that person yet. And so what came to your mind as I described this place and time is that you have this vague image of somebody who is not in your life presently. That person is not materialized. But you know and I know that quite frankly, in a moment like this, we want somebody to be there besides ourselves, right? We need this connection. After a great time, one of the great things that we want to do is share with some other person. We need to communicate. We need to reflect. We need to kind of corporately own this thing called a day and have a last call where we walk over, we walk over our life and say, listen, this is what happened today. Let's recount. And in that moment, after just an excellent day, it would be a fun time to count, recount the day with someone and yet no one's there and you have your choice. The interesting thing about the scriptures is the Bible begins with a moment just like that. The Bible begins in Genesis chapter 3 with a moment just like that. Let me, let me read this passage of scripture for you. Genesis 3, it reads this way. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the time of the evening breeze. In some translations of the Bible, it says the cool of the day, the last moment when the sun starts to set and the breeze comes out. You're sitting there in the cool of your deck chair. Maybe you have a sweater on. And God is like that in this story. He's walking in the coolness of the Garden of Eden after a day when there has been work. Adam and Eve cultivating and gardening and shepherding the animals and doing all of the different things that they did. And God comes to them after a day in which he's worked. Because every day is a day in which God works. The story begins with God creating. In the first day, he creates light. In the second, he separates the waters. In the third, he creates dry land. In the fourth, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. In the fifth, he creates fish that swim in the waters and birds that fly across the sky. And on the sixth, he creates everything that crawls and walks and lives on the land. And in each one of these days, besides one, he says, listen, this day is good. Everything I've done on this day is good. I've done this great work and I'm watching beauty give birth to itself. It's this amazing moment when God is extending this ability to to move life forward on a planet that had no life. And each time he says it's good and he finally gets to day six and he creates every living creature and then he creates Adam and then he creates Eve. And what does he say about them? He says they're very good, not just good. He adds something else in there, a very good, because they're the thing he loves most about this creation. And after all of this work, after all of this effort, and frankly, every day on our planet is a day when God continues to put forth effort. He's protecting, he's sustaining, he's creating, he's living out his life on this planet. And what we are experiencing is still the presence of God in very real and tangible ways. We've just never seen the absence of him, so we don't know what it would look like for him to forget us and leave us behind. He's still loving us. And at the end of this day, it tells us that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the time of the evening breeze. 
God is pulling up a deck chair and the sun is setting and he's worked and they've worked and it's the moment at the end of the day when they recount what's happened throughout the day. My suspicion is that the Garden of Eden was like this, that God came every day and that the man and his wife met, the first couple met with God at the end of every day. And they had these walks. They were like the deck chairs described on the Gulf Coast. They have these walks where they talk through everything that happens. I have no idea what they said, but I can only imagine. Why did giraffes have such long necks, God? Why do rhinoceroses look so absolutely funny? Why do some camels have two humps and others only one? I mean, these are the questions my kid would ask God, right? And these people are almost children. They're just starting out. And so as they're walking, they have the opportunity of saying, listen, we're the caregivers of your planet. We're caring for what you've entrusted to us. Tell us about it. Let's just talk. Let's recount. You know, today we had a little travel with a hippopotamus. We had to do some dental work and it was a little iffy, you know? One can only imagine what this conversation would have looked like, but God and the first people had a communication process. And God is a God who loves that moment of communication. It is not just us who need somebody in the deck chair next to us. When God goes looking for somebody to fill that deck chair, who does he put there? You, me, Adam, Eve. Who does he want in his life? He created us with the desire to relate to him. And in that deck chair, as he recounts the end of his day, who he wants there is Adam and Eve. And it's my suspicion that day after day, they ended this way. Now, I want to read another passage for you. It says, this is Genesis chapter 2, a little earlier in Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Why is it that we need somebody sitting next to us in our lives? Because God created us like him. God is a relational God, a God that loves connection, a God that likes to relate to people, a God that wants to be known and understood and walked through life with. That is our God, and he created us like him. These two passages remind us that God doesn't want to walk through life alone or absent of us. He wants to walk through life with us. He's birthing in us and has birthed in us this deep desire to know him. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal said that every person is born with this God-shaped hole in their lives. There's this chaotic moment inside of us where we know there's something wrong. There is this chasm that needs filling. There is something broken that needs fixing. There is a lostness that needs his foundness. Whatever it is, our God created us to want him, and we have lost him in some very profound ways. That's not where he ended. This, This story of connection grows one step further. Genesis 2.18. Some of you like this passage. Others of you are going to question. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as a compliment. And we like it because the opposite gender is a good thing, right? Whoever you are, the opposite gender from you, that's a good thing. But on the other hand, it says this crazy little word, helper. Anybody have a moment in their heart where they go, Helper? Really? That's all it is? But let me tell you that the Hebrew behind that word is used most often in the Old Testament for somebody very different than a woman. In fact, the person it relates to the most and is referring to the most is not a woman at all. It's God. God is referred to as the helper of his people over and over and over again across the Old Testament. This is nothing that denigrates women. It doesn't make women less. What it actually says is the living God is very much like that. I have no idea how many times Shelby has saved our lives, but I promise you it's not a few. Okay? So if you take offense to this, don't. 
What this tells us, though, is God created us for an up intimacy. We're created in his image and his likeness. At the end of his days, he wants to talk with you. He wants you to be his last call of the day. And he wanted him to be our last call of the day. He wants this vertical relationship. At Parker Ford Church, we talk about up and we talk about in and we talk about out. And we're talking about the up now, but then we grow beyond into this relationship with other people. And it says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as a compliment. And so the picture of Genesis at the very beginning, the picture of intimacy is first God and then this triangle shape with Eve on one end and Adam on the other and they relate to each other as they relate to God and it's a beautiful picture, right? Just gorgeous. Everything is perfect. The relationships are all this, this perfection. There's intimacy and connection and the ability to walk at the end of every day and go, listen, this is what's going on. We're learning, we're experiencing, we're growing, we're changing, we're transforming. God, walk us through this process. I wish I could have been there. Probably so do you. But that's not how it ends. You know how the story moves forward. Genesis chapter 3 progresses, and the woman is kind of tempted by this strange serpent. Who knows what that's all about? But there is this moment when the serpent says, look at this fruit that God says don't take a bite of. Now, when God birthed the possibility of intimacy in our lives, when God, God birthed the possibility that we could connect with each other and we could connect with him, he also birthed the single greatest danger to creation. What was going on in our world in that moment had the positive effect of being the best blessing we could possibly have. We had the option of relating to God. We had the ability to connect to each other. And he handed us this stuff. And he said, listen, you guys have the great possibility of knowing me and knowing each other and walking through life together in perfect unity. What a great picture. But in the moment when he handed us this intimacy, when he created us in his his image, he also gave us the possibility of failure as well. And he rolled the dice and he took a huge risk. He gambled that we would not fail. And of course we did. She looks at that fruit and it's not just her. Adam's alongside her. He doesn't say anything, but the Bible makes it very clear that she wasn't alone. And she looks at that fruit and it says that she looked at it and she could see it was delightful and she just wanted it. And she thought maybe it's going to taste good. And in that moment, she decided, listen, I would rather choose independence than dependence on God. I would rather choose my wisdom than God's wisdom. I would rather walk alone than believe that the almighty God of the universe has a plan for my life. And she chose and Adam chose alongside her to walk apart to walk apart from the intimacy in the cool of that evening god comes walking again and this time no adam and no eve they're hiding because they know when they start to recount their day this time they have things that god doesn't want to hear and that they're ashamed of they've done something wrong and so they go missing they go hiding and god has to call them out and there's this whole conversation that ensues In the moment when God birthed intimacy, when in the moment when God birthed the ability to connect, when he took us and decided we wouldn't just be another cat or another aardvark or another hippopotamus, we would be us. When he created us to be who we are today, there's something very different that took place. He birthed in us the possibility of failure and we chose it. And quite frankly, ever since there has been this inability to get past the brokenness that we have in our vertical relationship with God, but I suspect maybe what they didn't know is that when they had this problem with God, they also grew in a problem with each other. 
And ever since, the intimate connections, the relationships between human beings, and especially those that are most close, the most difficult are the ones that are closest to us. The people who live with us bother us more than the people who live five doors down. The people who live with us bother us more than the people in India or Iraq or Asia, wherever we might think. The people who are closest to us, those things become a massive issue. Those people, those relationships, they're the most dangerous and the most painful. And all because we looked at God in this moment and we decided we would rather choose independence than dependence. We would rather choose our wisdom rather than his. Now, sexuality, intimacy inside of marriage, I want to just tell you, Shelby and I got into marriage and we had this interesting relationship, you know. Um, Some of you have heard it. We walked through a a few different year process, right? It It took a while. But when we decided to get married, we decided we made this pact between us. Now, I don't say this in any prideful sense. It took the grace of God, believe me, to get there. But we decided honestly that we weren't going to have sex with each other before we were married. Right? We just, we just decided. That was it. And we made it. It was God's grace. I promise you, it was God's grace. But we made it. And we got to that wedding, and we got to the honeymoon, and we, we got three months into our marriage, and we were discovering this whole thing of intimacy with each other and connection and relationship. And I don't just mean sex. I mean the relationship, all of the stuff that goes on. Shelby puts her toothbrush on the wrong side of the sink. I didn't know that till we went on our honeymoon. You know, I mean, she, she's had to learn how to put it on the other side. <laughs> Not really true. I'm just picking. So, so we have this whole development process where our relationship starts to become something we're discovering. And we get three months into it, and I'll never forget it. I, I, and I asked her permission to talk like this. I really did. She knows. We, we got three months into it, and we started to have a conversation. And she said, you know, listen, all of our lives we've been in these churches, and they've told us. She grew up in a church. I grew up in a church. And these churches, they told us that this thing called sex is bad. It's wrong. It's evil. Avoid it. It's dirty. And frankly, our friends that were experienced in this area, they weren't the sort of friends you probably want to emulate your life after. We didn't want to imitate them. So one hand, we had our youth leaders who were saying, no, 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 stay away, avoid, get rid of, just walk apart. That's the wrong side of town. Just drive that way. You know what I'm saying? And so our intimacy life was built to avoid a bunch of things. And then when we saw that people actually were involved in intimacy, we saw that they were involved in all the wrong ways. And we got two pictures, just an absolute stay away from it on this end. And on this end, we got this kind of, well, well, it wasn't beautiful. It wasn't right. It wasn't good. We saw relationships that were broken and falling apart. And so we walked into marriage and we realized we had a whole lot of problem learning about what this is really about. We had a whole lot of ignorance in our life. And Shelby said, listen, it's like my brain was asked to turn a page. When we said I do and we slipped these rings on each other's fingers and we said till death do us part and we said that we will leave and cleave and all of that. It was a beautiful moment. It was great and I committed, but I don't understand. It's kind of like the page didn't turn all the way. And I still think of this thing that we're doing like it's kind of wrong. I mean, it's kind of like we're giving in to something we've always been trying not to do. And here we are experiencing it. And I started to discover, okay, we're nine years into this thing called marriage and Shelby stuck it out even though I made her switch toothpaste on the side of the sink. But we're nine years into this thing and I've read the Bible anew. Now I gotta tell you, the Bible is a dangerous book, okay? You might not know this, but the Bible has much more to say about sex than what I think it is average to hear in a church. I only heard about not having sex in a church before I got married. Never, in fact, we got to our premarital counseling. It was a Lutheran pastor and his wife. And I remember asking, okay, do you want to say anything about this? She said, no, no, well, you'll figure it out. It'll be okay. 
okay, good. Isn't there a manual, you know? I mean, our culture, we're, we're taught that this is all about what we, we, we all kind of just have this knowledge of it. But frankly, we don't have the right knowledge of it. We just have all of the other stuff. And so for just a moment, I want to talk to you about what the Bible says about this subject of sexuality and intimacy. We're going to walk through a variety of passages, and frankly, it probably will say more about some things than you maybe even are comfortable with. And it will certainly say more than I've ever heard in this church and most churches I've grown up in. It was a shock and a surprise. This past week, our elders and Tim and myself and Maddie, we all went to this conference. It was an Old Testament conference, and the pastor or the professor got up, and one of the first things he said is, you know, there's a lot of commands in the Bible. And you know that, right? Ten commandments, there's, there's ten of them. And there's lots more of them. You can go through the whole Bible. But the very first command, he says, is something completely different. It says this, God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The first command is even before the first sin. And he says, the first thing you're supposed to do, what it, translate that into contemporary English for me. What does it mean? Come on. Some of you can't even say it. You know, you're, you're in church and you're afraid, right? It says have sex. And the, the professor got up there. He was near, not nearly as embarrassed about this as you are. He got up there and he said, listen, don't just have sex. Have a lot of it. I saw a couple people kind of, oh my goodness, we're we're talking about the Bible here. Are we allowed to do this? God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The first command God tells them is go on. It's good. It's blessed. It's something God created. It's not just sex. It's intimacy. It's deep, this, this connection between a man and a woman. Something is supposed to happen. And he starts the story of the Bible asking these people, you're not just supposed to maybe do this. You're not just supposed to, well, it'll happen. It'll be, no, go do this. It's a command. It's like thou shalt not kill. Only it's kind of different. It's positive. I like the poetry of the Bible. Bear with me. This is the end of Proverbs. Now, when the poet says this, three things are beyond me, four I can't understand, that is the signifier. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of, it lets you know that the fourth thing is the thing you're supposed to notice, Okay. So for three things, they're kind of cool. But the fourth, well, look out for the fourth. So the first one is this eagle in the sky. And if you go to the Susquehannock Outlook, Overlook, on the Susquehanna River, you can stand over top of the river and you can see bald eagles flying below you. And it's amazing because when you look at a sparrow, they have to flap their wings all the time. You know, they're just these little tiny birds, but they're working so hard to stay in the air. But you watch an eagle, a big heavy eagle, and it just soars. It rarely has to move its wings at all. It just kind of alters this way and that. And the poet, on his way to wherever he wrote this the morning, I guess he saw an eagle. He said, the way of an eagle in the side, the, the, the things that I can't understand, I can't understand how that eagle doesn't just drop to the earth. So beautiful, so gorgeous. I got to write a poem about it. Then he goes on. He says, what about a snake and a rock? Well, you... you Beauty and snakes, you know, we're not big on snakes. But a couple months ago, I heard an NPR article about snakes. And they were talking about these physicists and scientists who are now discovering how snakes move. You know, there's some snakes, they don't even know physiologically how they can move the way they do. They can watch them, they can see them. Scientists go, wow, look at that, that's pretty cool. But we can't understand how it actually works. There's something uniquely amazing about the way God created a snake, and it just moves in this way. When I read this, or when I heard this article on NPR, I thought, well, that's not anything new. The proverb writer said this centuries ago. The way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship at sea. 
I grew up on Lake Michigan, and I raced a sailboat once with a, with a group of sailors across Lake Michigan in this race, and it was a 23-foot-long sailboat, and I still remember it. It was so light, 2,600 pounds, this boat, 23-foot-long and 2,600 pounds. The keel, the bottom of it, weighed 1,300 of those pounds, okay? So half a, it was only a 1,300-pound-foot boat, and it was like a giant surfboard. And when the wind filled its sails, it would come up out of the water, and it would surf just like a guy on a wave, Okay? It was the most amazing feeling to have the spinnaker out there ballooning out in front of the boat and all of a sudden the wind fills it and you just kind of pick up in the water and with just silence and no carbon monoxide fumes to kind of mar the moment, you watch that boat and it just takes off. And this poet says, look, I can see out in the Mediterranean there's this sail filled with wind and these people are kind of skimming across the waves. What a beautiful picture. But all of those things, the eagle, the snake, the ship, they all pale in comparison. Because on the way into his work that morning, he saw something else. He saw a young guy and a young girl, and they're sitting on some park bench. I have no idea whether Israel had park benches, but we'll just go with that. And they're sitting on a park bench, and he heard the girl giggle, you know? And he just kind of went, and he looks over, and there's the guy, and he's kind of sneaking his arm around her waist. And they're just connecting, you know? And he watches their faces and he sees that they're not noticing anybody else. There's maybe tens or twenties or hundreds of people in the street and the only person for them is each other, right? And he says, you know, the snake and the eagle, the ship, they're pretty amazing. But you watch a guy with a girl. Wow. That's a whole different picture, right? God talks more about this subject of intimacy than we want to give him credit for. No no conversation about sex in the Bible would uh, be complete without quoting Song of Songs. Now, the book of Song of Solomon, if you're looking for racy bits of the Bible, you need to know this is the raciest part of the scriptures. Honestly, there is no way that English translators will translate the the words in Hebrew into English. You know why? Because nobody will buy the Bible because you can't sell it in a Christian bookstore. If they literally translate Song of Solomon, people go, oh my goodness, I can't read that. I mean, what if a kid picked that book up, you know? This is true. I'm I'm telling you honestly. So it says, Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is a woman talking about King Solomon. For your love is more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore, adore you. Take me with you. Let us hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. I feel like I'm reading somebody's notes I shouldn't read. You know what I'm saying? Like I I came across this box in the attic and I'm like, this is my grandmother's stuff. And oh my goodness, not grandma, you know? That's how it feels. That's how it feels. We're reading this. This is 3,000 years ago. And this woman is writing, oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. It goes on. I had to pick a not racy part of Song, Song of Solomon. I got to tell you, I, pick, I took out a whole lot of stuff that was much more fun to read. And I thought, I don't know if Parker Ford can handle this, okay? We're not ready for the Bible. This passage of scripture tells us that God loves intimacy, that God loves sexuality. He's not nearly as ashamed of it as we are. You ever hear somebody in Yiddish say, yada, yada, yada? You know what it means? The Hebrew verb for to know to know in the biblical sense, yada. And Adam knew his wife and they had a son and his name was Cain, yada, 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 okay? The Bible, Genesis, uses that word over and over again. I'll just, I could keep going, we won't. Okay, this is a little less fun. This is 1 Corinthians 7. It says, do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. 
Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says, listen, don't leave the sexuality thing behind in your marriages. Now, here's why he was saying this. The, the city of Corinth was known for its massively messed up behavior. Today, archaeologists are pulling by the hundreds and thousands these bottles out of the Mediterranean Sea where Corinth once stood. And it's because there were these wharfs that went out into the ocean and these people had bars on the wharfs and they got drunk and there was this tremendously crazy profligate behavior all occurring, drunken orgies out on these wharfs. And when people got so intoxicated that they didn't want their bottle anymore, where did they throw it? Into the water. And today's archaeologists are digging this up. It was one of the least moral cities in the Roman Empire. And so when Paul and others established a church at Corinth, and when God started to move in these people, they were like, wow, that's all messed up stuff. This whole world of sexuality, it's just messed up in our culture. We just got to leave it behind. And he says, no, 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 not that fast. Don't get rid of sexuality altogether. Don't get rid of intimacy. You need to be a part of this. Don't deprive one another except when you agree for a time. You can devote yourself to prayer for a little bit of time, but come back to this marriage relationship and be a part of it. It's good. It's right. This is what God wants for you. This is God's plan for your life, to experience intimacy. And yet somehow we have taken this thing and we've broken the connection with God by wanting it to, to do it our way. And we've broken the connection with each other as a consequence of that. And so the human relationships go missing. And these passages talk about something that we struggle to be involved in every day. We live in a broken world, don't we? When it comes to this subject, we live in a broken world. The way we do sexuality is not okay. The way the scriptures describe it is good and glorious and right and blessed and all of these things, and yet somehow in our culture it's ending up in all the wrong spots and maybe it's shrinking in the right ones. I heard a pastor say after years of ministry that he said the the biggest surprise for me after years of ministry and people sharing their personal lives with me, he said, is how many people are not having intimate relationships with their spouse? That's the biggest surprise. How many people are not connecting around this level of intimacy? I I thought he would say any number of other things when he said the biggest surprise of ministry. We have failed in this area of intimacy. We have broken down. There has been hurt. I want to recount for you just uh, a few different ways that intimacy has broken down. Before I do, You're thinking to yourself, you've broken God's design, right? You know enough. I haven't even talked too much about the actual design, the actual rules. We haven't talked about this. But frankly, you're going to look inside yourself and you're going to go, I have failed in this area. Don't raise your hand. Don't tell me you did. You did. I know you did. I did too, okay? Our failures in the area of sexuality are all over the place. Intimacy has failed. We have brokenness all over our culture, and we're going to talk about that. But before we get there, I just need to tell you, listen, if you've failed in the past, I don't want... You don't have to even tell me, okay? I don't, they, they, we had somebody come, and they were starting to look at joining our church, and they said, you know, I broke God's rule in this one area of my life, and, and I don't know if, do, do you want to kick me out of church? And, and the person they came to was on our leadership team, and they, the, the leader said, listen, you know, if we kick you out of this church, we're going to end up kicking everybody out. And I thought, I'll be the first one out the door. Because if we're going to talk about people who have broken God's plan for intimacy, I suspect in our culture we've all done it. We've all failed. We're not going to start throwing stones in this, in, this, in this message. What we're going to do is admit we've been wrong and start to discover how to walk right. So brokenness. We're each one of us broken. I want to talk about entertainment versus art. C.S. Lewis lived about 50 years ago, and Lewis talked, he gave this great lecture once about art 
And he said, good art versus bad art is deciphered. You can tell the difference because bad art, you just sit there and you get entertained. You know what this looks like. You sit there with a clicker or you sit there with the popcorn in the movie theater and you watch an hour and a half of something and it doesn't ask anything of you. You don't get involved in any way. You may not even really get that emotionally involved, but you don't have to get off the couch. You can just kind of sit there and observe what's happening. It's an escape. It's in a way to avoid everything else in your life. You're sitting in this moment and you're watching whatever it is and you don't actually have to give anything. But good art asks you to sit there and enter into it. When you go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art and you're sitting in front of some painting, you can sit there. If you're like me, you can sit there for hours. You can start to look. We went, Shelby and I had a date, and we decided somebody was watching our kids, and we decided we're going to go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. She, at the end of the day, this was a bad day, right? It was a bad day. I had a great day. I'm sitting there in front of all these great, beautiful paintings, and I'm sitting there, and Shelby's like, okay, let's go, you know. And, and she said, well, why, why, you know, I want to sit here. And she said, we're, we're walking through this whole thing. Now, she likes art as much as I do, but I take longer to think. I just take longer to process, okay? So I have to sit there and enter in. And I, I, at the end of it, I wanted to go back and see something I'd seen three hours previous. And she said, we got to go. We got to get lunch. We got to do these things. And great art asks us to become a part of it, get involved in it. If it's great music, you start to kind of, you know, move a little bit, Right? When you start to experience some great piece of writing, you kind of have your heart changed. When you hear something great on the radio, you want to give. There's any number of ways. When it comes to artistic involvement, we are called to be people who are participants. Not people sitting on the outside, but people getting involved on the inside. Now, your home life is a piece of art. And frankly, I may never see it, and I don't want to. God alone gets to see what happens in the four walls of your house. You and him, okay? God gets to look at that, but you are creating art. And if you're sitting on the sidelines and letting life move on without you in the area of intimacy, you can be entertained. You can see sex on TV anytime you want. You know that's true. You can see it in movies. You can click on the internet. You can go get any number of pieces of literature, and you can involve yourselves in sex and intimacy that doesn't actually include another human being at all. You can just kind of distance yourself. And instead of being creatively involved in in this artistic process of a home life building together and one person stepping in and doing one thing and another stepping in and doing another and this connection and this relationship developing, we can sit on the outside and we can just kind of click. Tim talked to you about entertainment last week and maybe nowhere is entertainment most broken than in the area of sexuality. It's easy to use the sexual parts of our brains and to escape all of the goodness God created for us in this area, but escape it by taking the easy way out. It's much easier to click on an internet site. It is much easier to imagine a romantic relationship than to actually be involved with one. It's much easier to think of that guy who could take care of you and do these great acts and then look at your husband and go, oh my goodness, look at him. You know, honestly, some of the movies Shelby and I watch, I think I can't compete with that. Are you kidding me? Years ago, The Bodyguard, remember that movie with Kevin Costner? Yeah, great movie, great movie. I don't have a gun, you know? I mean, I can't be that cool. So we can sit on the outside and we can watch the art and we can go, okay, that's really cool. Or we can get involved and we can realize that God is watching and our family lives are an act of worship and this act of intimacy is not separate from our worship, it's part of it. We live in a life where God has called us to create beauty and to recreate what went wrong in Genesis 3 and to do it right this time and to live it out according to God's plan, according to this great artistic principle. We've got to keep moving, though. Rights versus relationship. You know, when I was about 16 years old, I thought of marriage as sex. 
sex, marriage, sex, marriage, marriage, sex, okay? And maybe I even thought of relationships as sex, and it wasn't even just marriage, you know? It was just kind of like, this is, Jay and I talked, you grew up not in a Christian home, right? Is that fair? Am I, am I allowed to say this? Okay, well, anyway, Jay and I had this conversation once. He said, listen, you grew up in an era, I grew up in a Christian home, and, and the normal, normal habits of the people around me were broken in sexuality, okay? It wasn't just the people at school, it was the people in church. I mean, let's just be honest. The failure rate in my youth group was pretty high. And Jay said, listen, when I was growing up, none of this stuff was normal. I, we didn't participate in these stuff. Jay, I mean, he was born in 1873, but still, you know? <laughs> When we talk about rights versus relationships, early on we get the idea that sexuality and intimacy is a right. We think we have the the right to have a certain level of satisfaction in our life. We think that the person that's across from us is supposed to please us in ways. We, We think we have to be somehow engaged in their personality and in their physical being in a way that keeps us connected. But what we're actually talking about then is rights. We're talking about selfish self-focus, self-interest, making me happy. What's her job? Making me happy. Well, that doesn't work at all. You know, at 35 years of age, after nine years of marriage, again, Shelby has stuck it out. God bless her. But in the middle, in the middle of this marriage, I will tell you that it has occurred to me that my life, the greatest act that I could do is to create the perfect day. Every now and then, one of our girls at the end of the day, it will go so well in our family that, that they have this phrase. It's like a stamp of approval they put on our family. They say, this is the best day ever. And I look back over that day and I realize that it has to do with me and other people as well, contributing in some interesting ways. It means that we get up and we make the coffee for the other person before they get up. Somebody does the dishes before they're asked. We start to step in and give gifts of generosity. It's not about sex. It's actually about family life. But what we're creating is this beautiful picture of art that God can watch and anybody who was there could watch and see these connections as we're giving to each other. But it all starts with us laying down our rights and deciding that what's most important is the relationship. And so we build into this relationship and we build into our family and we build these gifts into our life and we do things that maybe at first make us uncomfortable. We don't think we're ever going to do them, but out of love for our spouse and out of love for our family, we do. And we lay our rights down like Jesus at the cross and we start to involve ourselves in what is most important, relationships. One last category. We live in an era of addiction. You know it and I know it, right? I listened to a counselor recently tell me that of the things that he's dealt with, there's all sorts of addictions, okay? There's addiction to heroin and cocaine and alcohol and any number of things. We could talk about any of those substances. But he says, listen, the toughest thing we have a problem breaking is sexual addiction. The most difficult addiction to deal with is sexual addiction. And frankly, we're talking about people that are in this room. I don't want you to tell me, but I guarantee some of us are struggling in this area of our lives. Why? Because we got used to entertainment and we got used to the easy way out and we got used to thinking of sex and intimacy in a way that God never intended. And so we walk apart from what his true plan was for us. And it becomes absolutely addictive because it's so easy to involve ourselves in that side of sex and that side of intimacy without actually involving ourselves in the art of relationship and the art of creatively making a home and a family and creating beauty out of this two-gender system we're in. The living God has birthed us for much more. I want to show you a quote, and then we're going to close with the final slide. Sex is a communal rather than private, personal rather than public matter. Sex is communal rather than private, 
personal rather than public. That's Lauren Winner. She was a Jewish writer who became a Christian and wrote a book on sex recently, which is really, really good. It's worth your read. Sex is communal rather than private. What she doesn't mean is that it's supposed to happen amongst a bunch of people. What she means is that what we do in our own homes deeply affects, even though we don't know what each other's are doing, we do know that it affects every other person in our lives. What happens in that home life changes everything around us, and we can't afford to even think that it's private. What happens in our personal lives is not secret. It's not private. It can't remain hidden. It actually becomes something that affects those we love. It's, not, it's personal, but it's not public. We're not also supposed to put intimacy on display for everybody to watch. We're not supposed to sit out there letting parts of our lives that are re- to remain inside the house to somehow get outside. And our culture has messed this all up. We want to think we have the, the, the right to privacy and there is no responsibility to community. We think we don't need to have this be a personal matter. We think we can involve all sorts of people in one sense and we want to be involved in this personal relationship, but then it ends up becoming public and we put it on TV and we read tabloids about it and we connect in all the wrong ways. So how does this brokenness affect you? God has called each one of us in the kingdom of God. God has called every person in this church, no matter what your past is, and I guarantee you've broken God's plan some way, but he's called us to enter into his kingdom and to start to rebuild this thing called intimacy in our world, to reclaim what has gone broken in our society for God. He has called you to this. It is a monumental step of faith. Without faith, the scriptures tell us it's impossible to please God. And without faith, it's impossible, I think, at this stage in the game to even believe what he says about sex and intimacy is okay. But it starts, it starts in the least one place we can think of. And the bottom of this pyramid, I wrote the word covenant. That's what God does. He builds things together through promise. And he puts together these rules. You know, we don't like the 66 books of scripture. It takes a long time to read, right? It takes a long time to read 66 books. And so that's the whole story. And we could get this out of that whole story. But in between the pages, every now and then, God writes like a how-to manual. And he lists those things as rules. And so we don't like the book, but then when we get the rules, we kind of look at them and we say, well, God, that's legalism. That's just a bunch of rules. We don't like this. You're telling us we can't do this and we can't do that. And we can't do this other thing. What can we do, God? And he built a whole story about it. It started with a garden and it started with a God who wanted to sit on the deck of his life and talk with his people. And we broke that. And so we need a couple of rules and he starts with these rules. And of course, people don't enjoy those rules, but it's very simple. We don't even need to talk much about it. One man, one woman. Don't experience this thing called intimacy without that other person. If you're doing it privately, secretly, hiddenly, we've all probably been involved in something that's approaching romantic intimacy somewhere in our lives without that other person. It's wrong. It's wrong. We're joined together with a person who we're supposed to walk through life with. And when we're joined together to walk through life together, we are kind of tied to each other in such a way that all of the other things in our life are supposed to be left behind. This area of our lives is for marriage only. This area is for people who are married. It's one woman, one man. Not one man and one man. Not one woman and one woman. One man, one woman. The rules are that simple. It's not that hard. We have tremendous difficulty with them. And frankly, it's because rules don't actually build intimacy. They actually just tell us what to avoid. We can break God's rules and we can get outside of those lines. And when we do, we get hurt and we get damaged and all of those things. And you've been through that and you've been forgiven. Hopefully God loves to forgive from those things. But when we walk outside of the lines and we come back in, we got to decide to live by the rules again. The first step of faith is decide to be a rule follower. It sounds strange. 
but it starts with the outside in. Change behavior first. The second level is unity, living together. You know, Shelby and I, we really had a great relationship until we moved into the same house. The first three months of our marriage, it took a while, okay? We, after three months, pushed the reset button, went on a trip, and decided we had to get rid of all of this past in our life. And all of that past was literally a quarter of a year. That's really true. I mean, we just, we couldn't get enough of each other until we lived together. Then we were like, oh my goodness. It wasn't just the toothbrush. There was a lot more stuff, okay? That's how it works. Some of the most intimate moments for Shelby and I are when we sit next to each other and we say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. This unity thing, living together, means we have to be forgiven and accept forgiveness and forgive all the time. It means that we have to not keep score in the words of 1 Corinthians 13. And so I have to look at Shelby and she has to look at me and all the time, each step of the road is us deciding to live together. We're going to decide to follow these rules and if we break them, we're going to ask for forgiveness. And if we somehow step out of bounds with each other, we're going to regain this connection by living together in unity and that has to do with forgiveness and accepting it. We are forgiven by God and so we must forgive each other. And one of the things the Bible keeps getting us back to is our picture. The picture of what God would do in our lives if we were to rebuild his plan for intimacy requires us to remain in the same house even after that moment when we look at that other person and they have failed in some way. I have failed. Shelby has forgiven me. It's an amazing moment when that person looks at you and says, I don't hold it against you anymore. I love you anyway. It's an amazing moment. It might be God calling. Who knows? So there's this last step, intimacy, regaining the the closeness. You don't know what this is like, okay? You don't know what this is like. I don't either. I'll tell you why. Because the only people I know are mostly people who have gray hair or no hair at all. You know, I get to visit... Jim, you laughed. (laughs) That's only because you have less hair than me, but you still have some. So I get to visit these people in a nursing home, and I get to watch a guy who has loved his wife for probably better than half a century. I don't know. And I've watched as she, through Alzheimer's, has forgotten his name and his face. And now she's forgotten how to eat. And he's still there at lunch, and he's spoon-feeding her food that she doesn't want. And she doesn't say thank you. In fact, she doesn't talk at all. And she doesn't say hello when he walks in the room. And she doesn't say goodbye when he leaves. But because of this step of intimacy, because they followed the rules of God, because they birthed into this unified relationship, and they lived together for all these years, intimacy got born in such a level that it was absolutely amazing. We can have moments of intimacy. But frankly, intimacy is much more than just a sexually ecstatic moment. Intimacy means something that grows together through just beauty and art. People who are giving generously and who kind of leave behind their rights and join in relationship with each other and start to give sacrificially to one another. And intimacy is born from a moment and a lifestyle like that that goes on and on and on. And when you see some couple and you watch her stay with him as he's dying of cancer and she just can't go home because she's walked through life so much with him and at the funeral you sit there next to her and you hear her say the words, I don't know what I'll do without him. And you realize he has been no help to her for better than a year and yet she doesn't know what to do because there's nobody in that deck chair. Intimacy is there, right? And the tearing asunder of that hurts and the beauty of it when it's there is absolutely worth watching. The living God created us for that moment of intimacy. 
The living God created us for sexuality. It's beautiful. It's great. It's wonderful. But it contributes to this far bigger picture of intimate relationships where we get to support and live life together and regain what was lost. First, understanding God's great passion to have a relationship with us. You're here this morning, I trust in part, because you want to know what God thinks about you. You want to sit on that deck chair next to him and hear what God's going to say. But you're here also because you need to be involved in in healed relationships, relationships that start to go right. And you need to experience healing in the home. And you need to experience what God would do in bringing us back together in the area of intimacy. So are we ready to, in faith, take those steps? Whatever it is, you know the things that on the bottom level, they're outside the lines and you've participated. You've had a thought or two. You've looked this way or that. You've somehow withheld yourself. You've done any number of things, but whatever it is, you have broken God's rule when it comes to intimacy. I guarantee it. It just happens. And then you've had to walk past that. Are you willing to step into this unified territory where you're willing to give to another person even though they don't give to you? Are you willing to take the first step and extend the olive branch? And finally, are you willing to stick it out for all of the years, giving yourself to another human being in such a profound way that it is nothing less than worship? Sexuality in our culture is an idol. It's something that replaces God. And yet it was something that was intended to serve him as we worship him. And so this intimacy is there for us to develop a close connection and a relationship with our God and with other people. Are we ready for that? Are we willing to give ourselves over to it? Join me as I pray for you.